We're going to be looking in Luke chapter 23 tonight, starting a new series of messages I call simply Amazing Grace. And uh, tonight is uh, the first one of these that saved a wretch. This new series of messages will develop thoughts that are expressed in one of America's best loved hymns. Uh, we, in a way, are celebrating its 250th anniversary. 250 years. It was written by Isaac Watts in 1772. He was an Anglican pastor at the time. 1772. It was published as a song then in 1779. 250 years. Did I mention 250 years? We've been singing this song 20 generations more have grown up learning this song, singing it, being blessed by it, worshiping to it, singing it in times of joy, in time of grief. It's been celebrated with over 20 different official um, tunes. I'd get the word out in a minute. Tunes. Officially. Over 20 different tunes. I didn't check it out. I'm not sure whether that included the tune to Gilligan's Island or not. We used to sing it to that tune. Hey, run it through in your head. It fits just fine. Uh, we did that in church. It's the kind of thing kids do at church camp, okay? I mean, you're just kind of sitting around. No TV, no radio. Let's figure out how many songs we can sing Amazing Grace to. Gilligan's Island worked. Anyway, 250 years, 20 tunes. It's been recorded who knows how many times. It's a great song. Uh, I'm not sure how many of uh, today's modern songs are going to make it quite that long. We don't know. I mean, most of these that we have coming out today have a, uh, a lifespan, it seems like, of a decade or so at best. When was the last time you heard somebody sing Shout to the Lord, for example? Uh, it was uh, being sung everywhere just a few years ago. We seldom sing it anymore. Uh, but here's Amazing Grace after all this time. Now, I'm not going to preach on this song, and I don't want y'all going away from here and saying that I did because we preach from the Word of God. However, I am going to use this song as um, kind of a launching pad, I guess, because there are some thoughts expressed in it about the grace of God and we will look and see where these things are found in Scripture and how they can so greatly bless us. Originally, Watts wrote the song with seven verses. And so we're going to look at those, each one, over the next, uh, well, it won't be seven weeks because there's a lot of holiday seasons and things going around. And therefore, with this uh, brief discussion, we'll go to Scripture, Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. Let's all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, 
And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. May God bless the reading of his word. Today is my prayer. You may be seated. That saved a wretch. That saved a wretch. You know, one of the hottest theological issues in really the world today, but especially in American Christianity today, has to do with salvation of all things. You'd think after all these years we would have kind of figured it out, but that's not the case. Uh, I've told you before, I'll mention it again tonight, that the primary reasons why there are so many denominations uh, in the world, so many different kinds of Christians, is because we can't agree on the simple answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? The gospel, the gospel has always been divisive. It still is, and it will be, no doubt, until Jesus comes. But even among those who would answer that question correctly, What must I do to be saved? And we could answer that biblically as Paul did with the Philippian jailer so long ago. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Uh, But even among those who would give that answer, uh, there is still some pretty hot debates going on. I'm going to introduce you to a couple of theological terms tonight if you don't know them. Uh, They are monergism and synergism. Monergism and synergism. And uh, you probably don't know this unless you've ever sat down with somebody and tried to argue scripture or argue just about any other point. But one of the favorite things that people do when they are arguing, and by arguing I don't mean yelling and screaming at each other. I mean arguing in the sense uh, of kind of having a civil discussion, something that is almost unheard of in our culture today, but a civil discussion among people of different ideas or beliefs. And when it was done formally, it was called a debate. We almost never hear about that except to political times and I wouldn't even qualify most of what we see that's called a debate in political circles is calling it even a debate it's really not this is a civil discussion of people with different ideas and one of the favorite tactics in that is to try to couch everything in the two views it's either this way or it's this way And when you sit down to discuss something with someone, if you really want to discuss it, then you're going to see them trying to box you into it. Well, it has to be this way or this way. Well, there's a fallacy in that. not going to go into all of that tonight, but there is a fallacy in that. Because if you say, well, it's got to be this way or this way, then you're insinuating that of all the other plethora of possibilities there, all of those have been considered and excluded, and we can boil it all down to it's just this, it's got to be this or this. And that's one of the favorite ways that people have of discussing this issue of salvation, monergism and synergism. Monergism is the idea that salvation is all of God, monergistic. That salvation is 100% completely by grace, And that God saves people and he saves them whenever, however, whoever he wants to. However, with no interaction, nothing at all, it is completely monergistic. It is all of God. They then would accuse folks like you and I and anybody who doesn't agree with them on that point of being synergistic. Synergistic involves that two things are going on. That somehow we've got to help God or assist God in saving us. 
So God has a part and man has a part. This is the way that this whole argument is going on. And it is going on everywhere. Some of you will be curious enough to go home and look up monergism and synergism. And Google is going to show you the tip of that iceberg as they always do. But it's out there. Monergism, synergism. It's all talking about the aspect of salvation. How does salvation work? Is it all grace? Is it all of God? To that argument, I simply respond with Scripture. You know it as well as I do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, that refers to salvation. And that, that salvation is not of yourselves. It was not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a gift of God. It comes to us then by grace through faith. Is it then synergistic or monergistic? Uh, my answer is somewhat of a yes with a qualification. Salvation is 100% the work of God. It was absolutely and totally paid for by the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Do I have to help God save me? If I do, then I'm bound for hell because I can't do it. Salvation is of God. And yet salvation is promised to only those who believe. The Bible tells us that we're introduced to Jesus by John, none other than John the Apostle in John chapter 1, when we were told that he came into his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. What did it mean? Those who received Jesus Christ had done what? They had believed on Jesus Christ. And again, I present that simple answer that Paul gave so long ago. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We also call up Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 tonight, which tells us, but to him that worketh not, Paul says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, 5. Why is that a pivotal passage? Because it tells us that believing is not a work. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that does what? Justifieth the ungodly. We believe on him that justifies the ungodly, and therefore our faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, 5. Now, I could go along with that a, a, a lot further. I, I really could. I, I've argued this a time or two, in case you hadn't figured that out by now. I've, I've, I've been around this, this pole uh, uh, once or twice so many times that the grass don't grow there anymore. I mean, I've, I've argued this. I've been around it. it. It doesn't do a lot of good, it doesn't seem like. Arguments seldom do. 
Uh, most of the time it does good when you get to it on the front end. When you teach people the truth before some of these other guys come along and start muddying the waters with a lot of questions and clever arguments. And you teach them the simple truth of salvation. You say, how do you reconcile all of that? I don't. I don't. The Bible teaches that salvation is altogether a work of God. Salvation is completely of God. The same Bible also teaches Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So tonight I thought we'd, uh, instead of going through a whole lot of argument, although I couldn't resist (laughs) giving you just a little, I thought it would be good for us just to look at a great example of the great truth that Isaac Watts gave us so long ago Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and like you. And I couldn't think of a better example in all the scripture or better illustration in all the scripture than to look at this fellow. Though we don't know his name, Max Lucado referred to him as being a crucified crook. I like that. And he told us that there's a crucified crook walking around on the streets of gold in heaven today that know more about that knows more about the grace of God, he said, than ten thousand theologians. I agree with that. You talk about something that's somebody that's living out the grace of God. That's this guy. Luke chapter twenty three. Luke calls him a criminal. John doesn't give us a lot more information. He just spells it out specifically. Verse 44 of Matthew 27, the thieves also, which were crucified with him. It was reviling him, casting the same in his teeth. That is, save yourself and us too. They were making fun of him. The thieves, both of them. We don't know if it was minutes or hours. But before sundown on that Friday so long ago, at least one of those thieves had changed his mind. We don't know whether the other one did. As far as I know, he didn't. As far as the Bible tells us. And therefore, we can label those three crosses in, in this way. One of those crosses is a cross of rejection. And on that cross hangs a man who will die that day. And go to hell. On one of those crosses is a cross of reception. And on that cross hangs a man who will die that day and go to heaven. And between those two crosses is another cross. That's the cross of redemption. Y'all know that. You saw that coming. The cross of redemption. On there stands the one who died in your place and in mine. And who saved one of those men who called upon him. I want us to look tonight at what made the difference for this man. And what still makes the difference today. You see there's two things that we're going to have to know the truth about. If we're going to be saved. If there's going to be a wretch saved here tonight. There's two things you're going to have to know. 
whether you're sitting in this building or whether you're watching from home or maybe listening to it months or even years from now, the time when I preached it here in 2022, it doesn't matter if a wretch is going to be saved, there's two things that he has to know. Two glorious things that are revealed in this simple message that this thief preached so long ago. The first thing we have to know is the truth about sin. The truth about sin. Uh, This thief said, uh, if you're the Christ, one of them said, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do not... Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. We see, first of all, then he admitted the, the condemnation, the condemnation that he deserved. It is the condemnation that comes from saying that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God It is the truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is the truth of Romans 4 and 5 all over again that God justifies the ungodly. Why? Because they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But justification is offered only to those who are ungodly. Salvation comes only to those who are sinners. Jesus himself would say it. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He told us that they that are whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick. I heard about an evangelistic team that went into a men's prison, and one of the uh, prisoners was uh, putting his head right up to the bar and cried out to a member of the team, Can you help me? Can you help me, please? He said, I'm an awful, vile, depraved sinner. And that member of the evangelistic team responded, Well, thank God. And the man repeated, he said, you must, you must not understand. And I, I, I'm a terrible, awful, vile, depraved sinner. And the man looked at him again and said, well, thank God. Thank God. And he said, no, no don't, please, don't make fun of me, he said. He said, no, I'm not ridiculing you. I thank God that you confessed that you're a vile sinner. Because now you can be saved. And without coming to that knowledge, no one will ever be saved. Jesus would tell us as he promised the approach of the comforter in his New Testament fullness and the work of the Holy Spirit and what he would do when he comes into the world. One of the things that Jesus said that he would do is that he would convict the world. The word convict in that passage means convince. He will convince the world of three things. Of sin, of righteousness, And of judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. If we ever ask ourselves the question, well, does God work in the unbelieving world? Absolutely. What does the Holy Spirit do? He works to convince them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, you see, nobody will ever come to the truth of their sinfulness. We'll be too busy trying to uh, justify ourselves, <laughs> trying to say, I'm not that bad. But to bring ourselves to that point where we say, I'm a sinner, oh, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. A person who then sees the truth about righteousness, what are they saying? That there is none righteous, no, not one. And because, yes, I'm a sinner, and no, I'm not righteous. 
Then there's that third truth. I stand condemned under the judgment of a holy and righteous God. Conviction. We've called it that for generations and rightly so. To be under conviction is to come to that reality that we are sinners and we admit it. That we are under condemnation and we know it. Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation, he said. And we indeed justly we reserve or receive the due reward of our deeds. That's the condemnation he deserved. The understanding then that he demonstrated. Don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? Would we be presenting then that we should be terrified of God? Well, not exactly. Here's an electrician that goes to work every single day. He works around electricity constantly. He knows that that electricity can kill him. If I say to you that that electrician fears electricity, if I say that he's terrified of it, how could he keep working around it every day? How could he reach out and deal with it constantly if he was terrified of it? Well, it would ruin him. He couldn't work. He'd be so afraid he'd mess up, and then it probably would get him. I'm I'm not saying he's terrified of it. But when we say that he fears electricity, we're saying that he understands its power, and he treats it with the reverence that it deserves. It's a terrible thing when any culture, any country, any community loses their fear of God. And one of the characteristics of the last days in which we are now living, the Bible says, was that there'd be no fear of God. In the eyes of men. We live in that day. And this man on that night, day so long ago cried out, Don't you fear God? And the answer, of course, was no, he didn't. But the man who asked that question did. The understanding then that he demonstrated that God is to be feared. That we are accountable to him. That there is a just reward for our sins. Then there was <clears throat> the worship that he performed. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so while there was an understanding that he had to have about sin and he had to know the truth about sin, he also had to know the truth about the Savior. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a simple expression. It reminds me of another simple expression that Jesus said was rewarded with eternal salvation. And that was when a man went into the temple and he was so ashamed, so burdened in his sin, the Bible says that he wouldn't even lift up his eyes toward heaven. But he bowed his eyes, bowed his head, and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a great prayer. What theology is in that prayer? Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. In contrast to him was a very religious person. Jesus called him a Pharisee who was so thankful that he was not like other men, so proud and so arrogant that he would boast not only to others, but boast to God. It takes a proud man to be boastful to God, doesn't it? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these old pitiful sinners, like that 
Republican over there. Oh. But Jesus said that publican who prayed such a simple prayer went on his way justified. S-A-V-E-D. Saved. By the grace of God. Justified. Simple prayer. But all the theology in that prayer, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In this truth then about the Savior that he understood was that he was sinless. Sinless. This man has done nothing wrong. You see, salvation can come to us when we recognize and realize that we are sinful, but Jesus Christ is not. That salvation comes to us from the just to the unjust. That he died for us, the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. This man has done nothing wrong. Now, just with that very first thing that he said about Jesus, I have to wonder how much he really knew about this man he was dying with. I also have to wonder, with the excruciating pain that he was in, with the onset of shock, which no doubt was coming, had to be, how could all of that excruciating pain and the onset of shock, how could he be thinking of anything? I I, I don't understand. But he was. And in that moment, what he was thinking of was who Jesus Christ is. This man has done nothing wrong. Oh, they'd watched him make fun of him. He'd seen that. They'd watched him spit on him. He'd seen that. They'd They'd watched him mock. They'd watched him come by and wag their heads and taunt him. He had watched as Jesus, like a lamb before the shearers, was dumb. He offered no defense. He didn't. The great Bible commentator John Phillips once said that meanwhile, while Jesus was on the cross, he was saying, meanwhile, an untold legion, untold number of legions of angels Set leaning over the battlements of heaven, waiting for the order. If he's truly the Son of God, let him cry out to God. Why doesn't God save him? I don't know if the angels were leaning over the battlements of heaven or not. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a good, uh, good thought, though. I do know one thing. That order was never given. When they said he saved others, himself he cannot save. They were saying a truth on a level that they had no awareness of. He had heard the taunts. He had seen the response. And he came to the conclusion, this man has done nothing wrong. He also then refers to him with a name that means a sovereign son of God. Not only is he sinless, but he's sovereign. Lord, remember me. We must never overlook the significance of calling Jesus Christ Lord. 
Remember, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We never ever underestimate the significance of that person confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the primary confession of salvation. If thou believe it with thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, if you confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He is the sovereign Son of God. Lord, Lord, remember me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not only then was he sinless, not only is he sovereign, but he's also believed that he's the Savior. You see, you have to understand that. Remember me. Whoso heareth my word, this Savior said, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is past. From death unto life. Past from death unto life. I heard a story once about a little boy who decided to test an old man in the community who was known for being a man of great wisdom. People came to him to ask for his advice, but this little boy wasn't impressed. He thought he would take this highly educated, very wise man and make a fool out of him. He caught a bird, just a little bird. And he walked up to the man and asked as he was around a crowd of people, putting him on the spot. Sir, is this bird dead or alive? Now the man knew that uh, he was in a dilemma. Because if he said, well, the bird is alive, well, just a quick squeeze of his hand and the bird would be dead. So you'd be wrong. If he said, well, the bird is dead, well, he knows the same hands could just pop open and the bird would fly away. and He'd be alive. So as the story goes, the wise man, who was indeed wise, said, son, the answer to your question is this. It's in your hands. Is the bird dead or alive? It's in your hands. Uh, now the guy who I heard tell that story kind of went on to make the point that salvation is, is in our hands. But uh, it goes back to where we started tonight. There's more to that story. Because you see, the Bible tells us there's none that seeketh after God. None. We've all together gone, and we've turned aside our own way, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's none that seeketh after God. 
Jesus told us that no man would come to God except the Spirit should draw him. That's absolutely true. Paul told us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. Jesus himself said it. Whoever hears my word, folk, there's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't talk a lot on the cross, but what power those words carried. Perhaps most of all, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. The word is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. That he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It is the truth that God in his grace and mercy provided us with our eternal salvation. And it is there to be received. It is received by faith. And we have faith because we hear the word. And believe. Salvation. It's a simple expression. It saved a wretch. Like me. And what an example We have tonight in this passage of scripture. What could this thief on the cross do? Except believe. (laughs) Was he baptized? Did he join a church? Did he give offerings? Was he nice to people? Did he do a lot of good works? He had done a lot of bad works. Surely somehow, somehow he was able to atone for all that bad stuff that he had done. No. What could he do? Nothing. What happened then? He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the one who justifies the ungodly. And the same can happen to you tonight if you're saved. It's already happened to you. Jesus justified the ungodly because you believed on him. I ask you tonight to believe on that same Jesus, to receive that same gospel, to accept that same truth, and then you can sing that same song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's stand together, please.